This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host Glenn Ford. Coming up, performance art used to be a sideshow of movements for social change. But nowadays, art has become central to political organizing. We'll explore the artistic side of mass mobilizing. And the George Floyd protests of last summer, when tens of millions of people marched under the Black Lives Matter banner, have had profound and sometimes strange effects on the ruling class and the institutions that keep the rich in power. Now, Even the CIA claims to be a benign, multicultural force for good in the world. But first, the Black Lives Matter movement has been enormously reinforced by activists from the widest range of ethnic and racial backgrounds. But how can organizers keep this multi-ethnic, multicultural army on the march for social change? Kovi Biakalo is a widely published writer, editor, and scholar specializing in culture and identity. We asked Biakalo what needs to be done to keep a multicultural army on the move. You know, that's a good question in terms of like how people who are at the head of movements and how people in general join movements in order to fundamentally shift how society operates. I think when we're talking about George, we're talking about the very specific reality of police brutality and the response to that by many who who want us to move away from that idea of policing itself has been defund the police, abolish the police. And in the abolition movement, the new abolition movement, in terms of looking at how movements are responding to police brutality, I think you're seeing a lot of people come to terms with this idea of the state criminalizing people, the state being a carceral state, is not working currently for vulnerable people, but for anybody. That is the argument of the abolitionist movement as far as prisons go, as far as criminalization goes, that we are not actually solving problems. We're exacerbating them in terms of, first of all, criminalizing people, but also these crime is the concept of crime. If you examine crime and what becomes crime, the concept of crime is socially constructed. And we know that because what is considered a crime in each society varies, even on that very basic level. But I think that, you know, how we create a multiracial coalition, I think that's a very difficult proposition because we're all coming from this from very different perspectives. Um, we're all understanding the state in very different perspectives. Like, if you are not a white citizen in this country in 2021, as it was when this country was, when this country became a nation state, due to the genocide of the natives and due to the enslavement of Africans who would become African-American, who would become black Americans. If you are not a white citizen, you are ultimately a person whose citizenship is conditional. And it's not conditional in the same way. So, For example, I'm not a citizen of this country, but I am a resident. And so I don't really have any sort of, I would say, right in this country that other people do have as citizens. However, think of black immigrants and how their relationship to the country, even as citizens, is conditional in a very different way from how black Americans' relationship is conditional. They both are enjoying or enduring, rather, conditional relationships to citizenship. One has been here for multi-generations, and the legacy of one is the fact that the country was built under enslavement. The legacy of another one is that they 
adopt this history, even though this history is not theirs. And the legacy might also be, as a black immigrant is coming here and seen in America, or the United States of America, as a kind of savior. And so you're dealing with the tension in that specific identity of a black immigrant, even though you're also across the board, like um, black Americans, you're also dealing with racism. What I'm trying to get at really is because even those two people who may share a racial identity in this country, because they have two separate ideas of how the state treats them, of how their relationship to the state is conditional, even building coalition between the two will involve discussions of how do we approach the state in a way that we can both get what we want out of it if we are both coming from very different histories. And so this is just to give you an example of how difficult it is to build coalition, even when you have some of the same shared racial identity, because racial identity is only one identity that we're dealing with. If you go and you look at citizenship and citizenship history, we're dealing with something else. Now, I'm just talking about black people in America. We move on and we talk to brown people in America who may be, and when I'm referring to brown people, I'm usually referring to Latinx people, but you can also refer to brown people who are also Asian. And of course, even the idea of Asian American identity, we're finally having that conversation about how it really is, you know, it's a shared identity that is also vague because it doesn't really describe the historical realities of everybody who comes under it. And once we have that conversation about, okay, now we're also looking at Asian American identity and Latinx identity and how we draw in these groups of people into the interests of black people in this black Americans and other groups of Americans, everybody's relationship is conditional. When you look at the Chinese Exclusion Act, people who fall, and historically all Asians, have essentially been excluded from participating in this country because of that. And yes, it was rectified and all that. But that's a particular history that people who are Asian are dealing with. And their relationship to the state becomes conditional in a different way. So my overall argument is that I'm not exactly sure how we build these multiracial coalitions in order to get full citizenship in the state. But I know that we will definitely have to examine everybody's historical relationship first. And I think that that often gets lost in these conversations is that we're all coming from different conditional relationships to the state when we are dealing with multiracial coalitions. And to that end, I would also argue that not everybody has the same goal. There are some people who do not want full citizenship in the state. What they want is an end to the state itself, at least an end to it as we currently know it. So they're not trying to participate in American ideology as America as a nation state. They want American ideology itself to either be destroyed or to transform into something other than what we know it as. And that's very different from a person who wants full citizenship, who wants to be treated according to the letter of the laws that were intended for white people. Yes, and stemming from that, we might conclude that what's needed is more sensitivity to the long-range goals of the various peoples who gathered in 20 million strong under the George Floyd banner. And to be honest about what we as different kinds of change makers really want so we can discuss it honestly. I 100% think that that is something that people who are in movement have to be very conscious of. I think that it is time and it has long been time for people to be very honest about what they want and to sort of meet at the intersections that they can meet. And this is a good thing because I think clarity and intention, clarity of intention is very imperative or it's necessary in order to actually build these coalitions so that 
number one, we can actually debate about what we do agree on in terms of consequence or in terms of material gain, and also what we don't agree on and what we might need to separately fight for. But I think what gets lost in that is that people think oftentimes that because you and I may disagree on one or two things, that we can't build coalition. And I think that that, you know, as journalists, that is something that just observing it, I think is, it's deeply interesting because it's not pushing the movements forward in a way that I think that people who actually work in movements on the ground on a daily basis, doing the grunt work, doing the grind work, I think that they really, really understand better than perhaps a lot of people who are just sort of on the outskirts, dipping their toes here and there. I think they really understand this coalition business better than a lot of people because they, that clarity and that debate is what actually pushes movements forward. Yes, what's impressive about your writing is how you seem to be able to understand all the different ways that the conflicts between peoples who have some commonalities, but not all, can be breached at various levels of conflict or illuminated by simply looking at uh, the way people think differently about food and other basic cultural aspects of life. I like to think of myself as somebody who's trying to fundamentally understand divisions and why they matter and where they matter, but where also they do not matter. I'm deeply interested in culture as something that people perform, something that is an identifier, is a marker, is related to language, to self, to group, and ultimately to power. And so for me, I, I examine the world in a bunch of different ways. But when I'm looking at cultural analysis, the kind of multiculturalism work that I was trained to do at the university level, I'm looking at it, first of all, like whenever somebody is in a room, they're not in the room by themselves. They're coming in with aspects of their identities that are related to groups. Now, this does not mean that even when they're involved in those groups or when they are representing those groups or when those groups have relationship to them, it does not mean that they don't have separate ideas. But it does mean that there is a historical reality that we're dealing with when we're dealing with individuals, and that can't be ignored. And that has always been, there are multiple ways to look at the world. That's just my preferred way of doing it because I understand people so much better when I understand their context. And part of my understanding of a person's context is understanding all the identities and groups that form them and they are formed by and that they bring to the self that they are presenting. Back in the 1960s, we had conflicts that were dealt with maybe well, maybe not so well, when white folks were basically expelled from SNCC and other organizations and told that the best thing they could do would be organizing white communities rather than concentrating their efforts in black communities, which created problems of black self-determination by their very presence. I'm sure you're familiar with that history. Uh, we could see if that history isn't understood properly in both its flaws and what came afterwards, we might not be able to deal well with organizing those 20 million George Floyd people into an effective force to actually overthrow this regime. You know, when I think of how white people operate in spaces of Black people, Asian people, brown Latinx people, non-white people for all intents and purposes, people of color, as we like to say, even though it's not my favorite term because it doesn't really get to the heart of matters. I think there has been, a, obviously, Snake, there's been a historical kind of through line to present day of people in movements 
ultimately saying that when white people, and this, of course, I, you know, I always feel like you always have to give a caveat of we're not talking about everybody, but certainly enough people where it's an observation that deserves and warrants a generalization. So when white people occupy these spaces, there is a tendency to co-opt them. And we saw this in the civil rights movement. And in the last decade of at least observing the Black Lives Matter movement, those have been some of the same complaints from organizers. However, we also understand that, you know, representation is not the be-all, end-all. And representation in terms of identity markers, it's getting the criticism that it deserves currently because we also know that it is not only white people who essentially perform whiteness in movement spaces. And I'm going to say that again, it is not only white people who perform whiteness. There is a lot of, certainly enough, white adjacency amongst people of color themselves in these spaces that can also perform whiteness. And I think that's very important to know. That being said, I think that it is often a problem for people who are in movements where they're looking at the reality of what their communities need. And in as much as class is very important in the United States and class can actually be a very good point of coalition and solidarity, class is racialized in this country. And so even when you have white people who are involved in these movements to try and upend um, the system as we know it, to try and move the country to something that doesn't resemble this unequal imperialist state currently, I think that you still have an issue that, you know, people who do not want to be part of this imperialist state, I think that ultimately for a lot of these people of color, they still feel and they still observe and they still think that the best thing white people can do from their perspective is to try and go back into white communities, whether they're poor communities, middle-class communities, and so on and so forth, and to actually try and get their communities on board with the program that people in black and brown spaces, it's sort of, it's sort of that argument when you're having conversations, and this is just, you know, very basic, very minimal stuff of having conversations with white people about racism and all of that, and it's going smoothly. But fundamentally, you know, in that conversation, I'm always thinking, I'm like, it's all well and good for you to, you know, be talking to me, a black person, about racism and all of that. But do you have these conversations with other white people? Because in this country, we know that we're racially divided, not just by class and by occupation, and in our very neighborhoods, we're also divided by friendship. I mean, the friendships that you even have with people are racialized here. So I'm always thinking from the perspective of like, are white people who are involved in these movements, what is the extent of their relationship to their communities? And they have, they are much better off trying to move the needle there because it has certainly been historically examined that white people are more likely to listen to other white people than they are to listen to the rest of us. And so many of the questions that we tackled in the 60s, like the one you just described, still remain. But some questions raised in the 60s have taken a long time to understand, like the question of representationalism, the real conflict among Black folks who call themselves activists, and some of whom want fundamental transformative change, and others just want to get better entree into the larger society as is. And I think that that is going to be the reality for some time. I think people who have radical Black politics, transformative politics, in which they want a transformation of the entire state. They want the end of American 
imperialism. They want sort of the end of the carceral state. I think that they are well aware that, you know, they are in the minority. And at the same time, I also think that having their ideas get closer to the mainstream also makes the possibilities of their ideas um, something that can be debated by black and brown and all communities really in a very serious way. And I think that that's important. I think that these arguments over how vulnerable people, people who have been historically disenfranchised in the nation state that is the United States, how to deal with that, because we're still having that fundamental argument of how do we reckon with that? Do we transform the United States entirely? Can black people get full citizenship in the United States as it is? I tend to be of the belief that because the United States as a construct was not intended for black people, it was not really intended for anybody other than white middle-class men to rule, I tend to be of the opinion that it would be very difficult to change that without ultimately transforming. So if you listen to the radical black folks, as well as listen to the people who, quote unquote, just want more participation, can you really have more participation in full citizenship as a black person without actually transforming the state? I'm not sure we can. I think there's something to be said about people who have these radical black political ideas, they sort of playing the end game because they don't see any other strategy in which you can actually have equality without appending the system. And I think for the other folks who sort of believe that, you know, there is such a thing as incremental progress and with every generation we, we, we get a bit closer, I think that their arguments so far have been essentially co-opted. So they don't end up really delivering the material consequences that they think they do. But all that being said, I think that these debates are good. And I think that having people with radical black politics come um, in the mainstream and having that debate within black communities of how do we get there, I think that that to me is, even though it's not again, the material reality that we need, I think it's a sign that there actually is progress within the community. This, we're dealing with the one-year anniversary of George Floyd's death. The one thing I do want people to sort of think about is there's a lot of rhetoric, and there has been a lot of rhetoric, and there's been a lot of performance in terms of using the reality of a man's death, the man who wanted to live, First of all, using him and transforming him into a martyr. I've heard people talk about him in such a way. And I think it's very important to recognize that this is a man who wanted to live. He didn't give his life for the cause, as some politicians have said. This is a man who ended up dying at the hands of a representative of the state. And so I think that that's important to note. And as we move forward and think about and reflect on the last year and the monumental protests that went global and the calls for abolition and the calls for defunding the police, I also think that we have to pay attention to the material realities. You know, in my profession as a journalist, I have to kind of examine and ask this industry to examine, are we doing a better job of reporting on vulnerable communities? When you look at the sort of rhetoric that has emerged post-George Floyd. It's been a lot of rhetoric about diversity and inclusion, and that's all well and good. However, I need to also ask industries, I need to ask the state, what are the material conditions that have actually shifted for black people in this country? What are the material conditions for vulnerable people that that are often targets of the state that have shifted? Have they shifted? So as we do the reflection, we also have to look at the material consequences. And sometimes I get worried that even as a person who is employed by my work and makes money off of them, 
that we are also using our words very carefully to examine what has shifted and what has not and to hold people accountable as we try to create and build a better world. That was writer and scholar Kovi Biakalo speaking from New York City. Performance art is an important part of modern political organizing. Troy Zell-Carr is a doctoral candidate in performance studies at New York University and holds a teaching fellowship at the New Museum of Contemporary Art in New York City. We asked Carr about the role art plays in abolitionist organizing since the murder of George Floyd. Absolutely. I think that, right, art has, or aesthetics, even we might call it, I'm, I'm always trying to think about that word um, and what it means, but like the Black arts movement, it goes back, I would even say like the Souls of Black Folk is the kind of, for me, a proto kind of performance text, maybe. Like if I think a lot about text as performing and what they do. Um, and so to even think about the songs that Du Bois puts the sheet music in <laughs> for in that, in Souls of Black Folk, that like their performance, music, dance, movement of the body, um, art <laughs> has always been kind of a part of um, the kind of forward movement of Black thinking and ideology, I'd say. Um, and, and I would say, right, that it is also that this Black ideology has always been political, right, or had stakes in the political um, landscape. And so what I think is interesting about what is happening now is the kind of stagings of protest, of performance, of putting the body on the line in the die-in um, like they did in the sit-ins, right? And so there's this reproduction of performance that's constantly happening that I think we should pay attention to. And so to even think about the way that things have become commercial and are just constantly being circulated to us, it's something that I think we have to reckon with and think a lot more about <laughs> and really texturize our thinking around it, what we're doing with those images and those motions. Yes, and it's even international. I've seen a depiction of George Floyd's face on the Wall of Separation in the West Bank of Palestine. <laughs> yeah, so we also have to think about the ways that, like, what is happening here um, in the United States is what is also happening all around the world, right? Because we have to be thinking about globality. We have to be thinking about transnationalism constantly. Um, when we want to say the word decolonization or we want to say the words abolition, um, we have to liberation. We have to think about how, um, right, anti-Blackness is a thing that has poisoned the entire world. Um, it, it went everywhere. It's touched every corner. And so that this is important for me because in Nicole Fleetwood's work where she talked about ra uh, racial iconography, right, George Ford has now become an icon, right, that it now has become a global icon um, that is now on T-shirts and is being sold everywhere, um, but is also a, a kind of marker of a particular political standpoint um, and comes to be metonym for that. And I'm really kind of interested in how his face and icon, how Breonna Taylor's face and icon um, Amon Aubrey, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, how these spaces have become so familiar to us in household um, and every day. The opposition, the powers that be, seek to demonize people who protest against their rule. But art mitigates and defends against this kind of demonization by showing the protester not just as people, but as often joyous soldiers for progress. And so one thing that um, that I'm constantly trying to think about in my own artistic practice and in my collaborative practice with friends and why I study performance is because there's something for me in the doing of the thing. Um, so I grew up in theater and in theater, right, you study the script, you rehearse, you rehearse, you rehearse, and then you start doing. But the rehearsal itself is the doing. And you're supposed to get into the doing as you're rehearsing for the doing. And so what is, I think, fascinating, like you're saying about like art being this kind of space of political rest, first and foremost, where joy can happen and celebration can happen. But it's also the space in which we can imagine that our political landscape is about rest at all, right? That our politics and our understandings of economics and sharing is about performing togetherness <laughs> and performing collectivity that we're already in. Yes, and I would think that the presence of art in protest also does something to the leaders of the protest and those who think that they are 
the great minds. They are reminded of the humanity of not just the people who they are urging into action, but of themselves and of the people they are protesting on behalf of. I would have to say you were right about that because, and we might have we might have to maybe nuance it a little bit because then we have to think about what cultural output and representational output does, and whether or not it can really solidify a kind of hu- a shared humanity between oppressor and oppressed. I don't know. <laughs> we, I think we have a lot of people have written books asking about it, but I think that especially in the space of the protest and the like, the, the togetherness of people standing under a banner with George Floyd's face on it or with Breonna Taylor's face on it, that they're, I don't know, there's a rub for me. That icon is the thing that has to bring people together, that the fact that it has to be an icon in the first place. But I do think that there's a kind of sharing that we we have to like attend to more and more and more as we go more into protest, as protest becomes a part of our everyday performance. Because I'm also think, always thinking about images, and I'm always thinking about representation, and what like the the kind of the schools between good representation and bad representation, their kind of political right edge, and whether we should use them, and whether we should care about representation. And I think that because of the way, like we we have to do everything, right? That like what we we need to both raise questions about how we've been represented, how we want to represent ourselves, but we also need to you know, like, get down and dirty, you know, we need some propaganda, we need some, we need some you know, tracks, we need pamphlets. And that's also right, it's aesthetic, it's, it's written word, it's poetry, it's, it's all of these things, like, that's how we, that is the movement. <laughs> Art is the movement, and it's never not been a part of that. Yes, and of course, the movement needs literature, but that literature, even those that purport to be papers of the movement, need art in order to draw folks in and set them in the mood to learn. Absolutely. And this is actually so interesting because for me, even the way that I teach, like my pedagogy, like it's always around performance objects. Like let's watch this clip of this show. What are they doing here? (laughs) Why does this matter? Or a music video, right? And like, what is the world in which they're trying to get us to become a part of? What do they want us to imagine? How do they want us to change and comport ourselves in that world? And how can we take out, right, those kinds of aesthetic questions um, out from out of that imaginative world and bring it into our material reality. So it's not so much so that art is like imitating life, right? Or life is imitating art, but that like it's all together. <laughs> it's all the same canvas um, moving and working. In previous movements, I'm speaking of the movements of the 60s, the church was very important because much of the leadership came out of the church and lots of art was performed in church and therefore had to be suitable for church. But that was then and this is now and new venues for protest art have to be created. I think it's happening everywhere. I'm a pastor kid for the church. I believe that me and my friend Jasmine talk often about church outside <laughs> and what does it actually mean to bring the collectivity and spirituality and sharing that happens inside of the church within this kind of right, white capitalistic tradition and bring it outside <laughs> with the people that we know are also feeling the same spirit that we feel. And so in that, right, the song, like, I, I love people who can sing, sang, S-A-N-G, like, <laughs> and those people, right, are the people who feel the soul of, like, what is happening inside of the song. <laughs> and, right, that the poetry, the dancing that happens in church, right, um, that these are all things that particularly Black folk, right, Afro-diasporic folk are already, like, attuned to whether they're in the church or outside of it. And so even thinking about venue, I, right, we have to, we are protesting in the streets, but we're protesting in our homes and we're protesting on Zoom and we're protesting from around the world. And, you know, so there, that there's a kind of dislocation, that art allows a kind of dislocation for protest um, and political movement that I'm really invested in, I think. <laughs> yeah, that it allows us to move by a set of different coordinates. And you're also, we need to tell our listeners, a teaching fellow at the New Museum of Contemporary Art in New York. What are your duties there? 
So right now I am finishing up my tenure there. Um, I've been there for the last few years with a little break in 2020, but I'm working on the Grief and Grievance Art and Morning in America show um, and giving virtual public tours. I've been doing that since um, like about March. Um, I, the next one I'm doing is actually on Black queer and trans perspectives with Ra- Raquel Willis that just got announced today. And so I just bring people into the space and we talk about art. I used to do it at the museum, but now we're doing it online and just asking people what they see, what they sense, and connecting it to the greater sense around us <laughs> of like what is happening in the world and how we can like actually tackle anti-Blackness. And all these artists are telling us that and showcasing that and exhibiting that to us. And how does it feel when you get palpable evidence of the success of your artistic work with the movement? It, to gauge that is really hard, I think, because for me, the way that I assess the way that my art moves, my own like, kind of artistic practice, is the questions that it makes people ask and like the maturation of those questions. And a lot of my work on my website, trigo.com, is all about like, what does it mean to be looked at? And like, look at me, look at me, but like now what does it mean that you're looking at me? <laughs> and so that for me, I think within the movement is something back to representation, back to icons, is something that I am always trying to rub up against, like, do we need people to look at us? Like Elizabeth Alexander says, like, can you be Black and look at this? Like, can you? <laughs> I don't know. Should we be able to? I don't know. So yeah, I think within the movement, like these questions, or rather, I am attaching myself to the questions of a movement that has been happening from long before me and long before this movement. Yes, young people should be reminded in a way that they can accept that they have grown to look at things, that they're not the first folks out here trying to beat the devil. Yes, absolutely. And the devil is a perfect word for it because that's what James Baldwin called it. And so it is, for me, like you said about literature, like you like you said about art, that to be able to point back to, like, Black feminist artists of the 70s and say, listen, they were thinking about housing justice (laughs) and they were painting about it and they were creating little scale homes to think about housing (laughs) Um, and that we we not only have to build those little scales, but we can make these homes and whatever on a big scale. Right. And that we are part again of this conversation that is not that has not just been happening in the boardrooms that has not just been happening in the conference rooms or in the classrooms, but it's been happening in the streets and in people's homes and in people's kitchens. Um, and that, like, again, where the art is happening, <laughs> where the life is happening. Yes, we can celebrate a future that we are winning right now. Absolutely. So for me, this goes back to church for me a little bit, or my belief, my theological belief about abolition, that, like, we are in the world that we want to create right now, <laughs> which is to say that, like, when we're with the people that we love and we are maybe out in protest or inside resting, that, like, we are creating that world and that world is in us and with us together. Um, And so to keep doing that world back to performance is like the goal for me to keep telling people to like, no, just keep doing the thing we want to (laughs) do instead of the other thing. No fixing, just tightening. That's what my grandma would say. I just want to say back to what I said about abolition that like, I really do believe that when we talk about abolition, that we have to talk about it as if we are on the run because that is what those who were enslaved when they were thinking and talking about, they were doing it on the run (laughs) away from the thing that had captured them. And so to remember that like we are on the run together (laughs) and that like the song that you hear in the trees is like other people coming with you and leading you to the way. And that happens through history, that happens through art, that happens through literature, through media, and that, that we just, we have to keep holding on to, I have to keep holding on to that, keep reminding, whispering it to people, putting it in symbols. Um, just like, just like they did. That was Troy Zelkar, a doctoral candidate specializing in performance studies. The CIA, the guys that specialize in political assassination, overthrowing governments the U.S. doesn't like, and lying to the public about everything, is now trying to package itself as a politically benign institution, staffed by woke young black and Latino intelligence agents. But anti-imperial activist Ramiro Sebastian Funes is using his podcasting skills to strip away the CIA's new camouflage. Funes calls it unmasking imperialism. He interviewed Erica Keynes of the Black Alliance for Peace, 
who said Joe Biden is also trying to act like he's always been a friend of black and brown folk. Now that Biden's been in office and now the 100 days have come and gone, everything that we said would happen has happened, which is nothing of any benefit to us. But more importantly, the ways that the administration sort of came together under the push for representation really signaled that what we or how we understand intersectionality is really being muddled. And, you know, I always make the statement that the state always adapts. And we've seen that clearly as he was putting his his cabinet together. And then you see in a particular um, class of Black people, you know, positioning themselves for these positions within the White House. Like, well, you know, we helped you get here, so don't forget us. With no sort of introspection about what that would actually mean or any plans of what they actually plan to do for community once in those positions, because it's very individualistic, right? They're looking to extend their career in politics. So, you know, we helped you, one hand washes the other. And as we see with uh, Simone, that's not actually what's happening as far as she as far as she's concerned. But yeah, so and especially with with the the gallivanting around representation within that administration, right? Like now there's a, a Corinne uh, just got her job. I think she's going to be like speaker or press speaker or you know press secretary and, and first black, right? But Corinne is also Haitian American and has not said a word about Haiti. Corinne has also worked under uh, Kamala Harris, because she's always a pun- been a longtime pundit on MSNBC, but she's worked for Kamala Harris's for the VP. So as they were at, during general election, she was working alongside them. So for me, this just seems like, all right, you did something for us, so here you go. But as far as being able to do anything significant, she has not said a word about Haiti, not for or against she's been completely silent. And and really, this is people's first introduction to her. And what are we hearing? She's a black woman, LGBTQ. We don't hear a damn thing about her politics. And and most people don't even know she's Haitian American. I mean, well, her last name kind of gives it away. But for the most part, that's not their first thought, right? She's so far removed from that. She's black woman, LGBTQ, and that is it. So there's no introspection about her politics. And we see that a lot with every person that's in that administration, from Susan Rice to, to Kamala Harris to, you know, so yeah, we we seen it. We first see, saw it coming. And here we are now dealing with the backlash. <laughs> yeah, that's right on. It's it's exactly like how you said. I mean, even when Lloyd Austin, who's the Secretary of Defense, the first black secretary of defense, and he ordered the airstrike against Syria in the beginning of the year, I was just really, I wasn't surprised, but I was, again, like disappointed that people fell for that spell, that if we have people of color at these top positions, that somehow things are going to change. And recently, a few weeks ago, the CIA put out the series called Humans of CIA, attempting to humanize this horrible imperialist institution that, in my opinion, is one of the most monstrous, most evil institutions out there, the Central Intelligence Agency. And they put out these videos attempting to humanize the CIA agents. And almost all of the people that were highlighted were uh, Black women, Latina women, uh, LGBTQ person. I think there was one person who had a disability. And it was this attempt to blend identity politics and intersectionality with imperialism. And I think that I'm going to be optimistic here. I think more people are seeing past it. My concern is that people, unfortunately, are taking it from the right-wing point of view, where they're using it as an excuse for racism, for sexism. We're obviously against all of that. We want real liberation for our people, but it's not going to come through capitalism, through imperialism. And so before getting into some of those clips, they're hilarious, They're hilarious, but at the same time, very uh, frustrating and infuriating to watch because people watch it and eat that up and it's just really disgusting but it's important to really explain like what is the CIA to talk about the history and the impact the CIA has had around the world because it's not just any ordinary US government agency it was created in 1947 when Harry S Truman signed the National Security Act into law it's headquartered not too far from where you're at in the DMV area Langley Virginia And the CIA officially on paper is tasked with gathering, processing, 
analyzing national security information from around the world, primarily through the use of human intelligence, which means AKA torture and beating the crap and killing people around the world to collect information on enemies of the US government. And on paper, it's the only agency authorized by law to carry out and oversee covert action at the behest of the president. So there's very little oversight. I mean, I'm against this whole idea that there's government accountability because the whole U.S. government is they do crazy whenever they want to. They can make anyone disappear. But there's an extra added level of secrecy with the CIA that people will never find out about some of the worst things they've done. And according to the 2013 mass surveillance disclosures, the CIA's fiscal budget was $14.7 billion, 28% of the total and almost 50% more than the budget of the National Security Agency. So they're getting getting billions of dollars a year to do that nobody knows about, about some of the shadiest stuff in the world, torturing, killing people, carrying out coups. And again, it was founded in 1947 and very quickly from that time period until today, they've done some really atrocious stuff the Korean War, 1950 to 1953, killing at least 3 million people on the Korean Peninsula as the Korean people fought to liberate their country from U.S. imperialism. The 1953 Iranian coup against Mohammad Mossadegh, the democratically elected prime minister who wanted to nationalize the oil of Iran. Between 1951 and 1956, supporting Tibetan right-wing separatists in China, and this is something that we're seeing up until today, people who believe that Tibet should be free from China and all of this, that, that has been supported by the CIA since the 1950s against the Communist Party of China. 1954, coup against Jacobo Arbenz, Guatemala. 1957, coup against Sukarno in Indonesia. 1960, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba in Congo. 1961, the Bay of Pigs invasion against Cuba. 1964, coup in Brazil against President Goulart. 1965, coup against Juan Bosch in the Dominican Republic and the U.S. invasion. In 1975, the CIA funded the Angolan UNITA, which was the ultra-left opposition to the MPLA, the MPLA being the Revolutionary Liberation Movement of Angola. CIA, of course, supported the opposition and the pro-Portuguese forces. 1979, supporting the Taliban in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union and the socialist government, supporting the Contras in Nicaragua against the Sandinista Revolution. I could go on and on and on. The, the list is way too long, but you see the point. Basically, the CIA is not a force for good. The CIA has been involved in the torture, killing, murder of black, brown, colonized people all over the world, and it's nothing to celebrate. So... I just, I'm listing this to keep this in mind because I think a lot of young people especially are unaware of just how disastrous the CIA is. So it's not something to celebrate. Before we get into playing the first clip, Erica, what do you what do you think overall about the CIA? Do you feel like a lot of people even know what it does? I don't think people are fully aware of the extent of it, um, but primarily because people are fully aware of the extent of revolutions that have occurred, right? or those revolutions have been distorted, or the histories of those revolutions have been distorted. Um, but people talk about Shea Guerrero, and they, they leave out CIA, or they talk about Maurice Bishop and don't mention the CIA, Thomas, you know? they and right. he, So the CIA has been major in all of these sort of revolutions and, and sort of suppressing these revolutions, even to this day. I mean, um, what it's doing in the global South currently, in addition to OAS and the core group and, and significant institutions like that that have a say, especially with Southcom, alongside Southcom. So yeah, the CIA is still alive, and and that's probably why they needed to have that sort of Latina there, right? Because <laughs> they're doing a city in the, in the global South right. right now, so they need that sort of safe face. And and when I talk about the state adapting, I I say that to say like they can no longer use white men mm -hmm. like we have a averse reaction now like <laughs> to what this white man like no we are you know so now it's like well that's not gonna work so now we're just gonna prompt up all of these other identities which which gives credence to to the way that people sort of misrepresent identity politics or criticize identity politics right because right. i i still maintain identity identity politics is valid Mm -hmm. It's necessary. It's as necessary as, as the understanding of nationalism 
for colonized people is. Uh, but what we're seeing is not identity politics or not even really a mission. We're seeing identity reductionism, where they are literally reducing people to just these identities, right? And I think Joy James is really good at, at making the criticism of, okay, but what's your ideology? And I think that that's the slippery slope that we're always trying to balance because people sort of lack that dual that understanding of duality. There's a reactionary and a revolutionary aspect to all things. So yeah, you can be LGBTQ and be hella freaking reactionary and, and you know side with the state. But you could also be LGBTQ and be hella fucking revolutionary and take the state on. Um, so, you know, I, yeah. I think that it depends on your ideology. And without ideology, I think that's why I, um, intersectionality is just running rampant and, and meaning nothing, really, essentially, because there's no ideology attached to it. Everybody can have all these intersections, but what what does that mean? And, and that's why yeah. we could, you know, that's how we can see the promotion of figures, identities over what they actually stand for or why there's no introspection. Like I said, nobody's asking what, correct. What do you stand for it? Like, what do you, what do you do? Or no, they don't care. It doesn't, it doesn't matter to anybody in the long run of things. Right. Especially when us as colonized people are not used to seeing ourselves in that way. So now because we, and, and I also kind of push back on that because I, I'm, I grew up in the nineties and the nineties was hella black. <laughs> the nineties yeah. was hella black. So when people talk about, they grew up and not seeing themselves, I'm like, I see myself in books. I see myself in movies. I, you know, there was a whole back to Africa sort of movement that was occurring in, in the late eighties, early nineties. So I did get to grow up and see myself. Now, now we can argue that it probably changed over time or the dynamics of what we what we are seeing has changed. It's less radical understandings of ourselves, but we have seen ourselves. But what but what we're seeing now is just like there's no depth to it, right? And even in my my book gifting program, I, I push for depth because there's a lot of books written by Black people about Black people. But I mean, how many barbershop books can a child read? You know, <laughs> and that's not yeah. to that's not to slight those books. Cause we still, we still provide those books, but it's like, you know, there's a variety of books that inspire children to think outside of what they know. And I think that just that, I think that we are being spoon fed that we need representation as if we never had it. So yeah, now, that's a great point. yeah. And so now we are dealing with the results of that. So now we're so hard up and desperate for representation because we're under the guise that we it never existed for us before that we're taking any little bits and pieces and it's all good for us. Yeah, no, definitely. That's a great point. And it's like when you see and hear these people saying like representation matters and to a degree it does, like you said, but it depends for whom and for what. And like Comrade Salifu said in the chat, uh, dialectics, I, I mean, I, I think that's a great point. Even a lot of African revolutionaries like Sankara, like Amokar Cabral, who studied Marxism and and applied it to African conditions, will tell you that there's a difference between appearance and essence that just because somebody is physically black or brown or LGBTQ, that doesn't mean their essence, it doesn't mean they're in favor of their own people or their own class. And so I think that's a, gr a great way of explaining that. And also the nature of contradiction that you can be part of an oppressed background but still represent the interest of the capitalist class and the ruling class and we have to have that frame of mind to really understand you've been listening to the black agenda report on the progressive radio network information for liberation